I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. Happy New Year and welcome to Show Your Work. This is another special episode about the work of writing. This is uh, part two of what I hope is just going to be a million parts. Yeah, we are so grateful and appreciative of the reaction you had to our first writing mini episode that we have brought a novelist on with us today to talk about writing, to talk about the work of writing, um, the work of working on your writing, the work of selling the writing, the ups and downs of writing, of being a novelist. And most importantly, I think the work of believing you can do it, especially when not everybody does. We are talking about Alison Wynne Scotch. She is the author of seven novels, which you have seen and read and loved, including The One That I Want, The Theory of Opposites, and her most recent, Between Me and You. And she has had some Hollywood adventures that we are excited to gossip about and dig into as well. We've got some surprise cameos coming up that she name checks, so look out for that. And without further ado, here's Alison Winscott. Okay, so it is our pleasure to welcome Allison Winscotch to the show. Welcome to show your work, Allison. Oh my gosh, this is like the highlight of my career. Thank you for having me. Stop. So, uh, you thrill. Written multiple <laughs> so books. Um, you, your highlights of your career are much bigger than the show. However, why don't you give people an introduction into your work, what you do, um, your sure. career? So I uh, am a novelist. I've written seven books, uh, seven novels. Uh, I came out of the magazine world, freelance magazine world, uh, wrote for sort of all the major men's and women's magazines for a long time and got antsy and wanted to stretch my wings. And so transitioned to fiction and was lucky enough to um, be able to eventually transition to this more or less full time. How so long ago was that's that? What I do. So my first book came out in a, uh, boy, I think 2007, possibly 2006. I should probably know this, but it's been a while. But I worked in magazines from about, uh, I, starting about 27, 28, I did PR out of college and discovered that it was not for me. And in fact, when I, I know you have had a career change as well, Lainey, when I go back and I work with students in my old university, I always say like, you don't have to have it figured out at 21. Like who knows where you'll be by the time you're 28 or 35 or 40. So, um, I stumbled my way into magazine writing at about 27, 28, and then, um, eventually into novels. Can we go back to the magazine writing then? Sure. Because, yeah. Like, what kind of magazines and what were you writing? I was writing, I mean, this was in the magazine heyday, sort of before the real explosion of online content. 
Um, but I was writing for glamour and self and shape and women's health and men's health and all those servicey pieces that um, we all consumed uh, at the time and still do now, but online more or less. Um, so you, know, you were the, writing like glossy magazines when they were actual physical glossy magazines. I, exactly. Like a uh, Godspeed to my friends. Now I, I, it's amazing that they are all still having these thriving careers. It seems really daunting to me now, but yes, back when like you would go and pick up a magazine and take it to the gym and, or actually read one on an airplane. So, um, it was in that whole heyday. So, you know, gym pieces, orgasm pieces, diet pieces, all of that stuff that, that we consumed. Like, did you have a real library of your favorite stock photos that go with the article, right? Like, my mother-in-law is driving me nuts. That was not my job. Um, but, I mean, it was always, in, you know, it's it's a collaboration. Um, For sure. And you would get these, like, late-night notes. Like, can you turn this entire piece around um, in 24 hours? And eventually, I just wanted to work on longer deadlines and um, – be a little bit more inspired after, you know, seven, eight years, I just felt like I could write those service pieces, uh, in my sleep. And it's probably an ongoing theme where I, uh, tend to want to challenge myself in new directions for better or worse as time goes on. Will I insult so. you if I say that, like, if I'm <laughs> building a rom-com out of this, you're Andy in how to lose a guy in 10 days? <laughs> Uh, you would definitely not insult me because <laughs> I love that movie. Um, That's what so, she said, that she was like yeah. always turning around these pieces and she wanted something more. That Well, that's, I mean, and I take, like to take nothing away from that work because it's um, real work and it was great work and it was great training, I think, to um, have to be autonomous Um in terms of deadlines and my own inspiration for the book. But um, eventually, much like she did, um, I'm sorry, my dogs just came in here. I'm sorry, podcasters. Oh, um, we have I know all you, the dogs. I know, I know you have all the dogs. They were just barking. So let's just keep going. Um, I did not aspire to the world of politics, but I did aspire to a little bit more creativity. Um, as opposed to getting a 1200 word assignment and filing it and doing the revisions and then, you know, doing that all over again and having like five of those deadlines a week. So, um, that's how I eventually, well, it wasn't that seamless that I made the switch, but that is how I eventually made the switch. Will I insult you if I say, do you feel as though, like, is boredom an essential part of the process? It, I think it is for sure. I mean, particularly with the novel writing, um, and I don't know if you feel this way with screenplays, um, I need to just give myself a rest. And um, I find that after I've, um, you know, filed a manuscript with my editor or whatever it is, I just need to be brain dead for a while. Oh, and you're then, useless for weeks, right? Yes, exactly. So, and that's part of the process of, finding the inspiration to write about something else. And in fact, for my third novel, I was, uh, contracted for that. Um, and I just sort of had to shoehorn my way into it. And I don't love the book because I didn't really have that lightning bolt or that downtime to, um, 
find something that I was really passionate about to write. So I learned that I just, I can't like back into, um, you know, it's a year of your life. And if you're not, uh, super passionate and you haven't given yourself that time to sort of purge everything else, then it's just not going to be great work for me. I don't know if that happens with you, Duanna, but certainly for me. Oh, a hundred percent. And the fact yeah. that you can't rush it, the fact that you can't turn out something new, even if you need something new, even if the market needs you is yeah. intensely frustrating because it comes when it comes. And sometimes so frustrating. Come on top of each other. Yes. And sometimes it's a desert. And generally what has happened, and you and I talked about this a bit, um, off Skype or off phone, um, is, you know, I'll start something and then I'm a hundred pages into it. And I was like, and I always am like, this really isn't my best work. This is work to work. And maybe that's part of the process of just, um, sort of getting out the bad stuff to get to the better stuff. But that's just it, it just, you have to also have enough, um, self-reflection to be like, you know, I think that I could be doing something better and that's tough. I mean, it's, you, you want to get paid a check and you, some people probably file those books, but having done that for one of my books, I just, I'm incapable of it now. I don't like to put anything out that I don't feel is really the best thing that I could offer. So, but that's hard. I mean, you know, you get paid when you put something out. So it's, it's a tricky, um, situation. So let's go back to the first book. You were working sure. in magazines. It yes. wasn't working for you anymore. And right. then you had a book idea? Yes. Well, actually with my first book, um, I had written another book prior to that. Um, I had always wanted to be a novelist. Like so many people, they're like, Oh, I have a book in me. Um, and I was thinking about this before we talked how I got there. And, um, I was reading my, alumni magazine from my college and Sarah Dunn, who has written several books and is now a showrunner, I think on, um, American housewife, but there was, she was a couple years ahead of me at college and she, there was an announcement uh, back when people still read those things and Facebook wasn't up and running, um, saying that she had published her second novel. And I was like, fucking a, like, she's a couple years ahead of me. She's on her second novel. This is what I want to do. Like, why am I not doing it? So, um, I started writing one and it got me an agent, um, and it didn't sell. And that was its own sort of heartbreak. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, I'll write another one. And I wrote another one, which, um, my agent refused to take out. And she's like, well, I think this is going to do your career more harm than good. And I don't think we should take it out. And she's like, you can, um, polish the one that the other one that didn't sell, you can write something new. And I was like, okay, I'll think about it. And then I thought about it and I woke up the next day and I fired her. So, um, it was, it was a very, it's a perfect metaphor for what this career is, I think. Um, because like, some of it has to be gut instinct. Some of it has to be find the right people. Some of it has to be luck. And I just felt like I believed in the book. So I started the whole process over again. Okay. Um, so I'm going to stop you there. Cause I think yeah. both of us had the reaction. Duanna was like, Whoa. So yeah. do you remember, and can you share that conversation? So you woke sure. up and you were like, wait, this, this person essentially told me that she doesn't believe in my work. That, that's it. So that's what it was. How do you, right. So how did, was it an email? Was it a face-to-face? Um, I want to say this was 
12 years ago. So um, I'm trying to think it through. I believe that it was it was certainly not face to face. I think it was a phone call where I just said, listen, I really believe in this manuscript. I don't I, I sense that your confidence is gone in me in general. And um you know, it's a common phrase in our industry that having a bad agent is worse than having no agent. And I felt like if you're going to go out and take something out half-heartedly, I'm already behind. So, um, you know, I, I think that it was a good lesson and, um, something that writers have to learn or some people in any creative, um, industry, you have to really advocate for yourself. And, um, I just, I just believed in it and I could have been wrong. I mean, it is a hard thing to know if your work is good. And one thing I tell aspiring writers is revise it more times than you think you need to, because you probably think it's good, but it's probably not there yet. And I, you know, I, my agent and I had gone through a few drafts, so I just, I don't know. I just knew. Um, and so I, I'm not sure if that totally answers your question, but I got back to randomly querying agents again without any connections. And, um, I was lucky enough to get a few offers and I signed with a new agent and then we sold the book at a four-way auction. So it was just one of those things where, um, I mean, it could have gone really awry, but it didn't. So, um, that was the first book. I think that's just, uh, you know, to me, one of the things we talk about on this show is how women and men are conditioned to communicate differently and express themselves Mm -hmm. differently and take tough decisions differently. Yes. And I think that that applies not only in your professional life, but in your personal life. Like how many, for example, in the most basic sense, how many women have a hard time breaking up with someone and go like three to six months longer in a relationship than they want to or have to just because they don't want to have that conversation. So for For you in a professional setting to be like, I fire you. Um, I, I feel like a lot of people out there either may have had that similar experience or wish they could have taken that same decision. You know, I certainly, I mean, that was my first book. I have gotten much bolder, um, as uh, my career has gone on and I'm happy to talk to you about some of those decisions. I think in that case, It wasn't even about necessarily that manuscript, although I believed in it, but it was so clear to me that she, it's exactly what you said, that she had lost faith in me. So in any job or any relationship, if the other person doesn't believe in you, it's really hard to stick around or to sustain. And I am not good at breakups. Exactly what you said. Like I always say, I mean, prior to being married, I was like the person going down with the Titanic. Like I would do anything <laughs> to I mean, like anything yeah. it was like my only form of drama, but there was plenty of drama. But I just think in a professional sense, when you can see that somebody doesn't believe in you the way that you believe in you, um, particularly as a creative, like, how do you, how do you get back there? Then you're always operating from a deficit. Well, so I think, see, the other part of that though, is that you can also choose the path of trying to prove yourself to them even more, right? which can be sometimes an even bigger waste of time. Well, I'm yeah. so glad that you said that um, because what I think would be great is uh, 
maybe we can talk a little bit for the listeners about the relationship with an agent. Because I think that it is both uh, inflated and minimized in sort of general media. And I think people don't understand why that matters so much. Can you talk a little bit just about like the platonic ideal of who that person is? So I have been really lucky um, that after this debacle, I queried an agent who just sort of was my perfect match. And I had been with her uh, for all seven books and she's a good friend of mine now. Um, and I think we probably have a closer relationship because there's a friendship there than plenty of other people. And and people do not need to have a friendship with their agent, but what their agent absolutely has to be is, um, is they're a hundred percent advocate. And if there's any wavering, I just think, I mean, this is such a hard, hard industry or as any creative industry is that if that person who is supposed to be out there representing you, um, is not doing it in like good faith and in their, in their best capacity, then you are already, you know, you're already losing. So, but it, you know, in terms of the actual, what they do, they take your manuscript out to editors who, um, ideally are good matches. And then if you get offers, they negotiate that and they really protect you or they're, they're supposed to. And I always talk to people about, this is why, uh, you said a bad agent is worse than no agent at all, which is absolutely true. But also a big agent is not mm. necessarily going to do anything for you. It's for you sure. want the person who is essentially high on your work, right? Like who is the hype machine for you. For sure. I mean, and I have seen friends who um, have gone to big agents and sort of been swallowed up. They haven't had that advocacy there. When I started out with my agent, she was about my age and she was young and she was hungry, but she was smart and she knew what she was doing. And we have sort of come up together and that's been really gratifying as two women. And she now, um, is at an agency of all super powerful women. They, um, formed a new agency and it's so inspiring to see, but she wasn't high up on the totem pole when we started. And that isn't what I needed. I mean, I had never sold a book. There was, you know, no senior, senior person had to take a chance on me. So, um, I think you find somebody who is your match, not somebody whose title impresses you for sure. And the other reason for that is because, um, a thing that we maybe talk about, certainly you and I talk about, um, on Twitter where we met and this is, <laughs> that's uh, sort of germane to this tangent, but oftentimes your agent or later or your editor or your showrunner or whatnot is kind of your link to the outside mm-hmm. world, right? They're the only person through whom you're getting all that information. Do you guys know the expression sure. hip pocketing in the agenting world? No. What is that? Allison? No. So what it is, is an agent who says it mostly happens in acting and they say, I'm not really going to represent you, but if something comes up, you can kind of give my name, you can do my whatever. So that's somebody who is already split in a million directions and is like, but you're only going to get 10% of my attention I would give somebody anyway. Uh, But this is why people talk so much and agonize so much about agents. I... I think I hear it differently in people that you and I know, Lainey, who are, who are prose writers or book writers, but the conversations about agents are the number one thing that my, my TV writer friends and I talk about. No question. 
Yeah, I wonder. I, I am not fully immersed in Hollywood. Um, I've sort of dipped my toe in and out, um, and I'm still deciding <laughs> what I think. I, I, I have such respect for you, Duanna, because it just seems it's very difficult. It's very overwhelming to me, I should say. But um, I don't know how much of that goes on with uh, book agents or uh, you know fiction representation, but. I certainly know people, I mean, it's quite common that there's a decent amount of tur- turnover um, with authors. And, you know, I just think if somebody is losing faith with you or giving you whatever, 10% of their attention, how successful can you be? And ultimately, that's the goal. I mean, obviously, there are different measures of success, but you want to keep selling your books in so some level. On yeah. that note, there was an auction and four bids for your second yes. book. Yes, uh, for my first one. For your first book. Yeah. And so what happened there? Let's talk about you taste success. I taste success, but I think almost any debut uh, novelist will tell you that uh, it's a very bittersweet t- taste because you fantasize about all these crazy expectations like, you know, oh, I'm already casting the film in my mind and I'm going to like land on the times list. Um, and the truth of the matter is, granted, this was 12 years ago. So, and the book in the, the publishing industry has changed so much since then. But um, once you write the book, a lot of it is out of your control. And the book sort of goes off into the world and you are shown covers and you are told what the pub- publicity plan is. Um, and then you just sit back and you watch it go. So that was eye-opening to me. Um, there is a lot that authors have to let go of, um, for better or for worse. So that was really the, yeah, (laughs) well, I mean, when you are writing, you control every aspect of it and then you essentially hand it over to, um, the publishing house. And that's like the last time that you have, um, really any autonomy over it. So that was jarring. Um, and, and it just, it is what it is, but it's one reason why, and this gets into sort of more of the longevity, uh, something that I've learned as my career has gone on that authors are blamed when their books don't do well, but at the end of the day, we've handed in what the publishing house has wanted. And, I don't consider it an author's failure if a book is wonderful and it doesn't do well because we have met the standard of what our contract asked us. So, um, you know, for better or worse, you, you do, you, you, you hand it off. And so that was, uh, difficult, but fine, just different than what I expected. And I think it's different than what a lot of, um, first time authors expect. So at this point, you've gone from one book to seven. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the process has been <laughs> the same or different every time? Honestly, it's different every time. And Duanna and I have talked about this a lot, um, DMing on Twitter, that I think one thing that a lot of readers don't understand um, is that a lot of authors are really book to book where um, we rely on sales and, um, reviews and word of mouth. And if I I think you probably get one 
uh, dud of a book, but if you have two uh, lackluster sales cycles, you might not get another contract or you might not get another opportunity. Um, and I know that because it happened to me and it was astonishing and uh, incredibly demoralizing, but uh, it was what it was. So, um, and I do, and I mentioned this to you um, on Twitter, but after my fourth book, um, my imprint had shuttered at Random House and I was poached to another um, publishing house and I was super excited. There were a lot of promises made um, and for a variety of reasons without sort of publicly pointing fingers, the book did not do well. Um, and I felt like I delivered, the book was well-reviewed. I delivered what they asked of me. And when it came time to sell my next novel, nobody would buy it. And it was, I mean, demoralizing isn't even the right word. I just thought I would stop writing. Um, I was so angry because I had done what was asked of me. And then a book doesn't do well. And people were like, well, maybe you should write under a pseudonym. Maybe you should go find another genre. And I was like, fuck you guys. Like, I've had two books that have hit lists. And like, this one was out of my control. And I didn't have anything to do with it. Anyway, and I... You made a major decision. Um, I did. I'm, yeah. And I want to kind of pause there because I want to tantalize people about your major yeah. decision. Um, but uh, just to back up a little bit. So you yeah. wrote, the was it the first four titles that were all with the same publisher? Is that right? No. The first three. <laughs> no. Um, I'm telling you, I have had a very... Um, peripatetic career that I actually think is not that different though from, from many people. So after my first one, um, they offered me less money for my second book. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, um, we moved to an imprint at random house that I was super, super excited about, um, stayed there for my third book. And then as I was saying, they folded that imprint, which was such a bummer because it was a really lovely, special place. Um, and for listeners, an imprint is a smaller, um, I, I'm not exactly sure, like it's, like it's a, a division, smaller, sort of. yeah, it's a smaller division within the larger, uh, publishing house. So then I moved over for my fourth book. Right. And so, so. uh, in your time at that previous imprint, uh, mm -hmm. had you been working with a variety of editors or was it mostly the same team? It was the same, um, marketing team, but my editor whom I had moved to there for my second book, who is still, um, a friend and publishes amazing books. And she always sends me the galleys and she really does great work. Um, she left. So then I ended up with a different editor, uh, to finish up that book and to start my third. And then she left and then they folded the imprint. And then I went over to Simon and Schuster and then that editor left. So it's not, you know, it's a little, it can be a little bit chaotic. I mean, these editors are obviously trying to do their best by their own career as well. So, um, it's, you know, when you think you have something, um, that is seamless, it doesn't necessarily end up that way. Okay. So you guys, what was the big decision? <laughs> well, I think I know what Duanne is talking about, but I will say, so there was a little interlude here where I was like, fuck this. I'm done with writing and I've actually never talked about this publicly, but I got asked to write a novel with Britney Spears with her team. And I was like, great. Like 
I'm out of shits to give. That's fine. You'll write me a check and I'll write a novel with Britney Spears. That wasn't um, the big decision, which is I amazing. Know, I, I'm not trying to I stop know. you. No, I know. just that want to point the... out that writing a novel with Britney Spears is just a, a detour <laughs> in your career, which I love. I know. So as it turned out, I met with her team and then I was supposed to meet with her and she, she couldn't meet. So that fell apart, but I was like, so then we moved to LA and I just was like, I'm going to write a book that I want to write. It's, um, just for me, it's joyful. I'm so angry at all the rest of the world and, or I should say the publishing world. And, um, when it was finished, as I said, we, nobody wanted to buy it. And so I was like, well, I'm going to publish this myself. And at the time, um, very few people within my genre were doing that. And um, having been through the, you know, having come up in public, traditional publishing, I knew that I could put it through the correct pieces. And I hired a copy editor and I hired a real editor and I hired the graphic, uh, the jacket designer who had designed them for my books at Random House. And it, I, we ended up selling the movie rights, Jennifer Garner, and, um, the book did really well. And, um, it was a giant fuck you, in my opinion, to a lot of the people who were like, well, she's, she's done. And it was, it was also extremely gratifying to be able to get back some of that control that I was talking about that you lose as soon as you, um, go through your copy edit. So, mm -hmm. um, I put the book through, I mean, I handled the marketing. I, I, it, I actually loved it. And when it came time for my next book, I wanted to self-publish it. My sixth one. And my agent was like, no, you're not doing that. So, um, which ended up being a good decision, but, um, you know, it was just another part of like the work that goes into this career that, um, there are times when you are just rejected and people make decisions, not necessarily based on the work that you've done, but just bottom line sales, whatever it is. And, um, you have to go out and find a way to rebuild yourself. And I think if I hadn't done that, I don't know that I would have had a chance to publish more novels. So, um, it was great. I would I'm do really, it again. I'm really interested in this this part about self-publishing, because mm -hmm. I find that in the explosion over the last decade of self-published books, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that it's mostly, or it's a lot of women. Um, that is probably true. I, I actually don't know the statistics. I bet that we could Google that. Um, I wonder if that is because certainly the explosion and I, I could be wrong and I, I apologize. I don't, I don't mean to misspeak, but I feel like a lot of it came up in like erotica or yeah, mm -hmm. romance. Yes. So, um, I mean, you know, you look at the whole, not just 50 shades of gray, but there were, there are a lot of books that did very well yeah. within that, that genre. So I do think that there is, um, this is not my area of expertise and you guys might know better than I do, like a sci-fi element yeah, um, <laughs> definitely. where people are, are also self-publishing. I don't know if those are men definitely. or women. It's but... erotica, it's sci-fi. And I guess the point I'm trying to get at is, I mean, we can pull the statistics, but there already has been a lot of conversation, literature, and statistics revealed on 
traditional publishing and its prioritizing of men's voices. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep, for sure. Even beyond, and if you peel back the layers of Jennifer um, Weiner's um, versus Jonathan Franson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is so much. It was, what was her name? It was, I think it was Nicole Griffith. I'll look it up later. But okay. she published online this graphic of um, the publishing awards. And oh, for sure. How many people get awards, who they are, how they're distributed. And then going further than further to that, Um, There's been a lot of discussion in the last two years about how books are reviewed and the number of books reviewed that are written by men versus women. And so that in and of itself is its own cycle because if the reviewers and the tastemakers in publishing and in literature are always exclusively choosing books written by men, then it spurs on a continuous cycle of, well, if I'm an agent and if I'm a publisher and I want to sign an author, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for the next dude who's the right. mold of whatever, the Franson, the Eugenides, you, right? Eugenides. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. partly because those books are seen as being for everybody, right? Those right. like MFA literature books, uh, so right. to speak, are seen as being for everybody, whereas there are other books that are like, oh, well, that's a whatever. That's a romance. That's a sci-fi. That's erotica. They're seen as being like other, right? Yeah. The other right. thing I just want to do if we can, Allison, is can you timestamp for us when you made this decision, when you were writing your your fifth book? Because I think uh, the thing that we haven't fully said out loud is that at that time, uh, around when? Um... Probably four or five years ago, uh, 2012. Sure. 2013. Yeah. I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at that time, uh, the self-publishing the term was still surrounded with stigma. Oh, for sure. I mean, it was a big consideration where um, I really, I was nervous about what people were going to say, if they were going to um, sort of equate me with being an amateur. Um, As I said, certainly there were women doing this in the romance and erotica space, but nobody was really doing it in like the women's fiction book club book um, space. And, you know, I just felt like go big or go home. Um, it could have backfired much like firing my agent. And to be clear, I certainly have made decisions I'm sure which have backfired, but, um, I would took a lot of pains to make sure that nobody could look at it and say like, this is a piece of shit self-published book. Um, that was important to me. And, um, you know, when I get questions like on Twitter, should I self-publish? And I'm like, you have to understand there's a difference between uh, taking your manuscript and loading it onto um, KDP, the KDP platform, and actually putting out a good book. Um, and I, I think some of that differentiation is lost uh, at times. But um Absolutely. There, a hundred percent was, was still a stigma at the time. And, um, I don't know, like what, what was I going to do? Nobody was going to buy it. So I didn't want to write under a pseudonym. I thought that was actually 
and I have friends who have, and I take nothing away from them, but I was insulted by it. I was like, I'm proud of my other books, boring, <laughs> the one that I don't like, but, um, you know, so it was sort of like the, the Hail Mary pass, but sometimes that's what you have to do. I think. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently. I asked Mint Mobile's legal team. If big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation, they said, yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So I think that there's a dangler here that I just mm-hmm. want to tie up because yeah. I know our listeners are going to want to go back to this. Yeah. Jennifer Garner. Yes. Acquired the right. Did she do anything with it? She did. Well, um, she had a production company at the time um, that she has since shuttered. So we talked about it. She, I think she wanted to star in it. Um, I sent it to her early. I had back in my magazine days, I had actually interviewed her. And when I moved out here, we had a mutual friend in common and I, she'd read my books and I ran into her once and she's like, I'd love to do something. So I sent it to her and she likes it. Um, it didn't really get out of like the very early developmental stage, but, um, she was honestly one of the first readers. And when you were operating in such a vacuum with knowing I was going to self publish it and knowing that she had read it and liked it, um, it was very validating and sort of a, like, I felt like I was on the right path. Uh, So, um, that's, that's as far as it went, but, um, so it was readers, a lovely endorsement. I'm so sorry. I stepped over yeah, your yeah. last line. There. No, no. I was just saying it was a really, it was a nice vote of confidence. So for readers who are going to now obsessively want to read the sliding <laughs> doors of what happened and who didn't and picture her, this is uh, the theory of opposites. Is that the theory the one? of opposites. Right. Yes. So, and she would have yeah. wanted to play the lead, to play Willa? Yes. I didn't even realize that at first, but then I was talking to um, her co-producer at the time and Yes. So she, she wanted to, I guess she was going to play Willa, but, um, as I, I've had other, I, I had my second book option by Harvey Weinstein of all people. And, um, that got further in development, but I mean, again, hats off to you, Duanna. I do not know how you do it. I feel like so much stuff doesn't get done and it's, um, in Hollywood and it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It's a mystery to me. So So. that's an interesting, uh, distinction actually, because I think that I, I, um, I have not written close to as, as many books as you have written, but that was something that was much more in, was fairly interesting. That was something that was really fascinating to me in publishing is that, you know, I remember saying at one point to uh, my editor that I was working with, I was like, well, I'm just, I'm kind of doing this, I'm doing that. And I just want to make sure that that's what you want, that that's the book that you, that you want. And she said, well, we want whatever you're writing. Right. And oh, that's interesting. What a good editor. It's a great, she's a great editor. Yeah. Full shout out. But that yeah. is unheard of in film and right. television. Um, and that's for two reasons. Number one, because there are so many other stakeholders. There are right. a million people who want to weigh in and have opinions and want to sell 
again, like you were talking about, want to sell what sold last or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But also because, and this was the part that really blew my mind, in film and in television, writers are the first piece, but they are no means the biggest piece or the final piece, right? When, When an author writes a book, the, the author is the product, uh, and they are the book. They are the star, essentially. Right. And so, uh, yeah, it's a totally different world in in film and TV where you are much more there. You talk about giving up control, and that is a a daily facet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's uh, but arguably less lonely. So that's the trade off. <laughs> right. And, and also in publishing, when you are contracted for a book. You, it is going to come out like there is going, you're going to go from A to B and there's going to be a finish line. And, um, my very brief experience with film and TV is that there are a lot more unknown, um, quantities that go into it and it, nothing may ever happen with it. Um, which is fine, but there is a certain gratification, uh, knowing that the book is going to come out. And then you have to see how it does, which is not necessarily in your control, but at least it's going to be published. Right. As opposed to the millions of projects that, yeah, never happen or right. get made Abandoned. but never get released or yes. uh, yeah, get yanked before they hit the air. It's it's an endless haul of fun. <laughs> exactly. So in this time of explosion of like TV series and movies and everybody's looking for IP, as a yes. novelist. Mm-hmm. Have those opportunities increased for you? I would say that um, the the opportunities, the the questions, like oh, what do you have for um, IP, have come up. Um, I mean, like I, I have certainly more of my friends' books are being acquired, and I'm thrilled for them. Whether it's you know uh, Reese Witherspoon's doing Taylor Jenkins Reid um, new book, which you will read and is great, but um, I, I'm seeing a lot more acquisition, um, and I am getting inquiries. Nothing has been um, officially made, but it's ex- it's an exciting time. Actually, I think for the first time in a while, I felt optimistic about female writers and the content that we're producing and in terms of how it's being, um, received and it's not just being put off in its little box, uh, that it would have earlier in my career. Um, so in that sense, yes, again, I think the, the bar for getting something made is so high that I just, maybe I'm cynical about that, but there, there's definitely an increased interest. And I give a lot of credit to like the Reese Witherspoons who have really, um, made it sexy to be a reader and, um, turn that, you know, turn that stuff into film or TV. I'm interested too in before, as Joanna was saying, and as you were saying, you write a book, it's going to get published. And Mm -hmm. nowadays I'm hearing more and more conversations about, you write the book or you pitch the idea, you're writing the book, and the agent is already thinking about selling the book rights and the movie rights at the same time. In fact, right. many authors, like that's happening too. Like you just mentioned Taylor Jenkins Reid's um, yep. new book, which actually doesn't come out until the spring. Right. And it's already been acquired for development mm-hmm. rights by Reese Witherspoon. Right. So that isn't something that used to happen, let's say, 10, 15 years ago. It used to be that a book got published. 
it was successful or mildly successful. And then it was optioned and turned into something. Now it's, you know, the book comes out and fucking six months later, the movie comes out. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's what I'm seeing with a lot of my friends. They're, you know, they, they're posting TV deals or whatever, really much earlier than, um, we probably would have had that opportunity. Um, I was lucky with my second book that it, it was optioned before it came out, which gave it so much, um, built-in benefit of the doubt for a lot of people. And it, it, in terms of marketing and publishing, uh, within the, the business side of it, but, uh, it is just a great platform for all of these books to further succeed. And for these women to then, um, climb higher in the ranks. Whereas before we were probably relegated lower and we weren't taken as seriously and these opportunities just didn't come up. So it's all, escalating into a win-win, whether it's, you know, Taylor or any of these, um, other women, it's, I feel like it's sort of all for one and one for all right now where their success is our success. And, um, you know, it's been great. And to not to tie it all into Reese Witherspoon, but, you know, her work and Carrie Washington's work and, um, Emma Roberts work, all these, uh, public faces who are, um, really recognizing books or Sarah Jessica Parker. I'm actually listening to a book that she just recommended. Um, you know, they're all doing good in, in their own way for women like me who are sitting at home, like, Oh uh, gosh, I really hope this book does well. So, um, it's, it's been a nice, you know, collaboration in that way without even having to be a, a formal collaboration, but they are recognizing what a lot of these women are doing. And it's, it's gratifying because you, you work to have it read. So that's the, that's the point of it at the end of the day, hopefully to, you know, resonate with someone. And what I love about what you said that I'm just realizing as you're talking is that we often talk on, on show your work about finding sort of the thing that is your thing or finding your sort of nerdy point and, and making it a job, <laughs> making it a thing. Um, but I'm realizing that all those women that you listed were, yeah, they're interested in books and they're interested in, in sort of promoting female writers and whatnot, but they right. were also filling a hole created by the fact that Hollywood doesn't make rom-coms anymore. I don't think it's an accident that a lot of these projects that have now become huge on screen are about the interior and exterior lives of women, which is something we used to see in the heyday of rom-coms, right? It was a very specific type of woman, but we didn't see it. Um, And this is their way of bringing those, those perspectives back into the spotlight when all we have are like superhero movies. That's right. I mean, it's them taking back some of the control that they lost, whether it's for better roles or just so that there's a better reflection on the screen. Um, I think I just read, I'm sure you guys saw it, that female-centered films actually do better at the box office or have been doing better at the box office. And it is a mystery to me as to why it has taken so long for, you know, I know you guys scream on the site all the time, like, let's have more rom-coms. I mean, Women are out here. We're reading books. We're uh, dying for more uh, representation in it, through all spans of the arts. So, um, you know, it's 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 a nice time or for it to be a female writer. Whereas, 
I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done, but three or four years ago, I think it was a bit more demoralizing and, you know, credit to Jennifer Weiner and to um, all of those sort of bigger names who have lifted, done some of the heavy work to um, raise awareness of this. But it's, it is, um, I don't know, it's an exciting time for me and a lot of my peers because they're, I think we're taken a little more seriously um, and that our stories are just as important to tell um, as Jonathan Franzen's. So, you know. Well, speaking of diversity in storytelling, yeah. um, there has been also a lot of debate and discussion about who gets to tell whose stories. In sure. particular, um, in particular, in publishing, there have been a few articles that Duane and I have sent back to each other over the last year about, let's say, a white author writing a person of color oh. character. Right. And then having beta readers or sensitivity yes. readers mm -hmm. go through yes. that content. What's been your experience, mm -hmm. if any, in that, in that area? That is such a great question. And I have to tell you, I told Joanna this, I think the discussions that you guys have had on this podcast have been so illuminating and so interesting, certainly for me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in terms of the perspective that it's offered. Um, I feel as if I write, have written in the past too white and it's because it's more comfortable for me to write my experience, but that is no longer okay. And, um, I think a lot of my peers feel the same way that it's, um, much like a lot of people, um, all over the country, we are recognizing that, um, there need to be more perspectives told. And I don't know that I am the person to um, write all perspectives. And I think that there, um, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that, who has the ownership to write as many perspectives, but I'm writing a book now. My, my new manuscript is set in the world of um, theater. And I chose that partially because I think it's really interesting, um, but because there are so many different types there. And I, I, ha I have to push myself. I mean, there is every sexuality, every skin color, um, every personality, and it. I don't know. I think it's important to do that, but it has to be done. Um, I, I don't even know what the right word is. I don't want to say sensi sensitively because the sensitivity readers and all that. I, I think that you just want to give it the respect that it deserves um, and give it the thought that it deserves. So um, I really have appreciated your discussions on diversity and representation and what that can do. So I don't know if that totally answers your question because I'm not even sure. I think that's sure a great what answer. I think you're, what you're, to, to me, my takeaway and what you're saying is that like you're open to learning and hearing about it, which has been, which I think is the first step, right? Um, right. Instead of, because we've seen the reaction from people who are like, well, I'm just going to write what I know. Like, yeah, I mean, I mean, how boring Lena is Dunham that, steps though? in that a lot. Right. <laughs> well, and the other side of that, yeah, I, like to be, uh, how do I always get in this position where I'm now the apologist for people we can't bear? But I think the other side of that is if everybody just writes what they know, then it's also about making sure that the landscape, the publishing landscape or the film and television landscape or whatnot has voices from 
all different places, that it isn't just kind of East Coasty and white people writing for everyone, that there are also voices that are of every diverse sexuality and economic status and cultural and, and, uh, you know, place of origin, that those are also seen, as we say, as stories for everyone, not, you know, it's not a, oh, it's a a First Nations story for First Nations people, but a story about people for people, I think is the other side of that. Right. I mean, and that gets a little bit to, speaking of Lena Dunham, she was just given a script, uh, you guys can correct me because my memory, I only vaguely glanced at the story, but she was just hired to write, yes, I want to yes. say like a Muslim. Yeah, Syrian I, I, refugees. Yes. Right. She sure was. And, <laughs> I mean, it, it is not she sure my, was. like, you know, I'm not here to like shit on Lena Dunham, but that was an opportunity. It seemed to me to, uh, advance somebody who does not have as much exposure, but possibly more experience, uh, within that world. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of a, uh, um, it's a little bit of a balancing act, Lenny, to get back to your question. Like, I don't want to say that I'm the right person to write the, uh, Muslim refugee story, because I think that that should go to somebody who probably, is not Lena Dunham, um, who, you know, has a better understanding of that. But certainly within my world, um, I'm now keenly aware that it is my obligation to um, expand that and be more inclusive. And um, I mean, I don't think I've been um, exclusive, but it is something that I am wholly aware of now in, I hope, um, a positive way. I mean, if you're not learning and growing, particularly as an artist, like what's, or I don't mean an artist, but as a creative type, what's, what's the point? Um, I have no interest in writing the same thing over and over again or writing the same characters or anything. So, um, I think it's just one more way that we should push ourselves and, um, you know, women have felt a little bit, uh, alienated. And certainly I can understand how, uh, people of color have as well. And if I feel that way and I want to be included, it's my job to, you know, open up the doors for others, I think, hopefully. So speaking of, uh, not always doing the same thing and setting yourself challenges, you have been doing some screenwriting as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> tell I us have. a little bit so, about it. What you tell us what you can say and uh tell us about the things you can't say and we'll uh you know, we'll play elevator music. Sure. Um, well, so I um my last book is set in Hollywood and um it is a, an actress and a screenwriter and a friend of mine um Pete Corelli, who uh, wrote Crazy Rich Asians and knows of you, Lainey, and is very grateful to your su- for your support of the um, movie, read the book and was like, well, we should write the screenplay. And I was like, okay. Um, is this so we have you and me? Yes. Okay. Um, so we wrote that, but we changed it. We made it um, more diverse. We um, tried to be more inclusive. And... Um, it was great. I mean, it was an amazing learning experience. Um, it's a totally different muscle in terms of like the actual work of it, which was really illuminating to me. Um, and now we'll see. I so don't know. Tell us a little <laughs> bit then about the process. So it was your book, uh, which was had my been book. published at that time. 
or yes. it was about to be when, when yeah um no it, it had come out I think it had come out when and he read it um he he's a friend of mine so um he he had read it and um it the book has a really different time structure where the wife tells the story backward and the husband tells it forward. And I just, honestly, it was so arduous to write. Um, and it took me so long and I was so exhausted from it that I didn't really anticipate that I would have any interest in writing the screenplay, but I wanted to learn from him, um, because he knows what he's doing. And I just thought, why not take it as an opportunity to really learn another type of craft? And so we uh, broke out the story in the timeline at his in his office and whiteboarded it. And then um, I would write some and he would give me notes and we would go back and forth until until it was a script. Uh, so you when you were adapting the book, um, one of the things that is very endemic to to TV and film is that everything can change all the time, which is to say, mm -hmm. not I'm not talking about actors' whims and cranky directors. I'm talking about story is much more fluid. You can have something yes. that is a super faithful adaptation of a book and like Game of Thrones readers are like sitting there with annotated <laughs> bibliographies, or you can have something that is the vaguest suggestion. So right. which do you feel like this adaptation is and what was that hard or not hard or freeing or how did you feel about it? You know, I have always been of the mind. So time in my life, my second book, the one that Weinstein bought, got a screenplay written, a screenplay had been written for it. Um, then it, it didn't get made, but I didn't love the screenplay, but my whole feeling was my book is my book and those are my words. And a movie is a separate beast. It's its own thing. So, um, whatever that was going to re represent, that was fine. Um, this is, I would say sort of down the middle, uh, maybe half of it is true to the book and half of it is me listening to Pete because he knows what he's doing and saying, I totally trust you if this doesn't translate to screen, because it's obviously a very different medium, as you know, Duanna, then, then do what you need to. Um, and I, I don't know that all writers would feel that way, but, um, for me, my first job and my first love is the words within the book. So, and nobody can take that away from me. So if some, you know, you need to service the medium that is in front of you. So, um, we condensed a lot of it. We took a lot of it out. We, change some of the characters. Um, but I think it's a really good script and that's what had to be done. If I'd been like, no, it has to be exactly like the book. I mean, that, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know if you, you've adapted books or authors like that. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I've worked on a, a few different things, some things that come from, uh, old projects and I'm, yeah, I'm currently working on an adaptation right now. And, uh, it's a bit of a dream in terms of, uh, the original creator's, uh, freedom. Uh, yes. but I also know it's hard for people. It's hard to, you and I talk a lot about screenwriting, Lainey, and that, that there are things that are, there are things that are carved in stone, but that's also just kind of a phrase that you say, there's not much that's carved in stone and things can change on a dime. Um, so, and I feel like that's something that has been both confounding and exciting for you. Yes? Yeah. I, and I think a good example of that maybe recently would be Big Little Lies. Mm -hmm. um, Oof. That was and, so good. You know, they, 
the spirit certainly of the series matches the book, but yes. clearly there were major changes yes. made from, you know, screen to, or from book to screen that were necessary, obviously, for what they were doing. And I think it worked out. I think the book stands alone on what, for what it is. And obviously the show stands up. Yeah, yeah that was, I mean, I love that series so much. I have to tell you, um, as a sidebar, it was like on my back list of things to read. And then you guys were raving about it. I'm sorry, not to read, to watch. You guys were raving about it on one of your podcasts and I immediately started watching it. And I was so glad that I did because I thought that was one of the rare instances where I liked the book, but I thought the series was exceptional. Um, and it's exactly what you said. I just think if the spirit of the original source material is there again, I'm just not an author who is going to care that much like great it's gonna get made so that to me is the win and it, you know hopefully it's not total shit but um yeah I think you just have to let go of it and not not everybody feels that way but I I personally do so I, I definitely am interested in the process though when you're working with a co-writer I just re- mm-hmm. I just recently read an interview with um Steve McQueen, who directed what I consider to be definitely one of the top five films of the year, which is Widows. It's really upsetting to me that that it isn't doing as well as it should. And he directed it, but he co-wrote the screenplay based on an old British television show, I believe, with Gillian Flynn, who, of Mm. course, is Gone Girl and Sharp Objects and whatever. And when he was talking about working with her, they actually never were ever in the same place. Right. So they talk on a like they talk on the phone a bit, but they were both writing independently and then merging. And I don't have the screenwriting experience as you do, Anna. And now you, how does that work when you're not in the same room with somebody? And so, do you are you like, hey, you work on Act One and I'll work on Act Two? Like, what's going on there? Well, I'm sure that Duanna can speak more to this than I can, but the way that we did it was, um, I mean, Pete had other bigger projects and I had the time to actually do a lot of the writing and I wanted to learn it. So, um, I would do a decent amount of the writing. I would send it to him and he would make it better. And then he would send it back to me. And then I would learn, I would absorb that, and then I'd keep going. Um, And then he would, it was sort of me laying down a lot of the early stuff and him improving on it, frankly. Um, And I'm grateful uh, for what he would do. I don't know, Duanna, how how you do it. It's, you know, it, it didn't. I think it obviously comes down to your collaborator. It was very seamless for us. I've known him for a long time. We're friends. I trust him. And so I think that trust with a collaborator is really um, important. And I would imagine there are plenty of situations where you are thrown into a room and you don't know the person. And it is not as easy to just say, oh, yeah, fine. Totally rewrite that scene, which is what... I was willing to do. I I don't know, Joanna, how is it when you collaborate with people? Well, I think what's um, the number one key, the reason that I'm not surprised that you say that it went so well, I get that he was a friend of yours and whatnot, but I think that you're a pro. And I say that in the sense that after seven completed books and however many other projects on the work, on the go, you know that the work is never perfect, that there's always room for improvement. 
And so right. people who get that, people who are in things in a collaborative spirit, which is what the writer's room is for, is for everybody not to top each other, but to be like seven brains are better than one. Uh, it's always going to be better. Uh, right. You know, there are exceptions where when thing is, something is written by committee, um, there are very politically incorrect terms, Elaine, to refer to <laughs> what you're talking about, about act, you do act one and I'll do act two. Okay. Um, usually when there's a desperate deadline, um, then the people in the room uh, can group write a script. But um, but uh, I'm thinking more of a like a kind of an urban dictionary type term uh, <laughs> to explain that. That's not always great. But when somebody is working the way you are or when Steve McQueen is working with Gillian Flynn or whatever, if there's respect there for the person, yes. then – uh, then of course you're going to go back and forth. It's the coworker who you take your memo to or your whatever and say, hey, would you take a look at this? Because you know that they're going to do it in the spirit of making you better and not trying to pick holes in your ego or your story or mm -hmm. whatnot. Well, and I think that gets back even to what we were talking about at the beginning with agents or editors. Um, there just needs to be that mutual respect, whether it's a collaborator, whether it's uh, looking for an agent. It's it is such um, it can be such a heartbreaking uh, career or path that you just need to align yourself with people who you think will have your back or whom you respect. And also, I think it's important that you take your own ego out of the situation a lot, um, which can be difficult when it's your own words. But uh Digging in and being temperamental usually doesn't make anything better. Yeah, but so. tell that to Hollywood and everyone. <laughs> well, in it. I know. Well, for sure, which and is probably why Pete and I got along so well because we're both like, no, your idea was better. No, your idea was better. But, um, you know, I think particularly uh, as a young writer might not um, have the foresight to understand that constructive criticism is really beneficial to your work. And that is how you get better. And um, seven books later, I still get long editorial letters and that's fine. Like that's, that's the only way to become, to like constantly be in a state of growth. So, and if you're not like, what's the point of being stagnant? So um, that was a long winded way of talking about collaboration, but I do think that respect and ego and all of that stuff has to come into play. Okay, so the script is done. Um, you're working on another book, and sort of. uh, what are you also a vocalist? Are you like, do you have a, a side hustle in cookbooks? What's next? No, I. Um, what's next is I really need to write this new book, but it's just it's what we were talking about at the beginning. It's I'm like waiting for that lightning bolt, and um, it's it's not coming. So I'm toying with setting it aside, but I really like what I've written so far. But I'm stuck at like 75 pages. So I'm not sure. Um, I'm trying to figure that deadline? out. Do you have a deadline? No, I don't. I'm, okay. I'm not contracted for this, which is both a blessing and a curse because when you're writing under pressure with a contract, obviously it can get it, you get it done, but I don't know that it's always your best work. Um, as in my third book, which I don't love. And, um, I'm open about that. Like it was, you know, I, whatever it is what it is. But, um, I just, I hate not being able to produce my best work. And so there's a little bit of self pressure that I put on and I'm just trying to figure it out. So, um, but you know, I know Duanna, you and I have certainly talked about 
the state of reinvention and how you don't always have to do the same thing forever. Like, I don't know if I want to write novels for the rest of my life. I, I don't know, but, um, that's okay. I think, um, it's like how all these actresses are going off and pursuing lifestyle brands. Maybe I'll launch a lifestyle brand. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, here's the glory of this business. It's never yeah. boring. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, like the, the, uh, the impetus to get a writer to like get in the shower, as you and I discussed beforehand, like maybe I'll, I'll launch something to do that. I don't know, but, um, hopefully it will be this next book set in the world of a national theater tour. Um, Oh my God. Like you can, it's a podcast guys, but you can just imagine me like beaming. I know. I was like, this is right up to Anna's alley. Um, Yeah. We'll we'll, we'll talk. We'll, we'll talk. I I have it. I have it as, um, as the chorus line national tour right now. So, and it's, I'm having so much fun with it, but I'm sort of stuck. So we'll see. The soundtrack. Well, you, know, you have been so great and we've taken up so much of your time. Oh my time, God, so this so is like a thrill it. of my life. Um, so just as we let you go, final question, anybody can yeah. answer. Why do writers like Twitter? Oh my God, that's such a good question. Well, I mean, the obvious answer is that it's procrastination, but I think the better answer, first of all, Twitter has like ruined my life because it makes me so exhausted these days that I think that's part of the reason that creatively, um, it's a little bit difficult for a lot of writers these days. Um, I don't know if you guys feel that way. Well, you guys are in Canada, so (laughs) you're, you're, you're not as, it makes um, its way through. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It crosses the border. (laughs) Um, but I think honestly, it's that there is a lot of um, isolation in our job. And at least when Twitter first came around or Facebook or whatever it was, it was a way to connect and um, sort of have like the coffee talk that we don't have because we, most of us are working from home. Right. So I don't to know, be a writer, apply think? sweatpants, open Twitter. Yeah, I'm wearing sweatpants right now, and um, I will too. probably look at Twitter Obviously. after this. Yes, we actually are in the same uniform. You're wearing sweatpants yeah. and like an off-the-shoulder-ish uh, sweatshirt that kind yeah. of exposes one bra strap, which I yes. think is the must-have. Like you have several of those. I do. Yeah. Um, I have I'm, several. Yeah, today I'm just wearing a sweater with a hole in it, but same guys, <laughs> same yeah. thing. Yeah. Sweater with a hole in it. I mean, that is quintessential. I'm telling you, this could be like a lifestyle thing. Like we could pass it off as um, the writing, the the writer's wardrobe. (laughs) Tune in next week for holes in sweaters. (laughs) Holes in sweaters, off the shoulders, sweatshirts with built-in bra straps. Oh yeah, sure. Oh, there you go. That's a thing. Like you do a. Oh, is that a? Okay, yeah. Like it's hanging there. Yeah. Yeah, you're approaching cold shoulder though. I don't know. We might have to discuss. Visual media. Yeah. Um, but then, but to, to answer your question, I do think that's why. I think it's a sense of camaraderie and connection and, you know, you don't have to leave your house. And let's be honest, aside of out clevering each other. Yes, for sure. Um, although I feel like now, I mean, there's so many super clever, like the comedians and whatnot on there that it's, um, I don't think I can out clever any of them. But. You are one of our very, very favorite Twitter friends who have become oh, a real friend. Oh, my God. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for showing us your work. Oh, thank you for having me. No, it was like super geeky, but I mean, we've <laughs> I done 
Um, this will be our second mini writing episode. So Great. I listened I to the first one. There are a lot of people out there who are aspiring writers who are also writers. And we've also talked about how writing, you don't have to be a novelist to be a writer. Like a lot of people out there sure. who listen to this podcast are writing for work, who are writing research mm-hmm. papers, who are writing speeches, who are writing presentations uh, for conferences. And you know, the same struggles and frustrations, the same sense of like, you said you were waiting for the lightning bolt. It applies to all of us who have to like express a thought and tell a story. Yeah. And I just want to say one thing to that. I know that we're wrapping up, but you know, I came out of PR and then I segued to magazines and then I segued to fiction and writing is writing and it's, um, the discipline and the skill set, whether it's research papers or, you know, whatever you're drafting for work, um, there's craft there and it can, who knows what's on the horizon for any of your, uh, listeners or readers, but, um, it, it can go as sort of as far as you want it to go once you've put that discipline and craft in place. So sky's the limit for them. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Oh my gosh. Thank We're you for having me. We're going to do this in me. person in LA in February. I cannot wait. I literally, and, and I'll get Taylor to come. It, we'll, we'll be caring like signs about how much we love you. So. Shout out to Taylor Jenkins Reads. <laughs> yep. Um, and um, shout out to you though. Thank you so much. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank you for having yeah, me. This is so great. We're such, we're so honored that you spent time with us. A seven time published author. And, uh, yeah, and, you to know, our measly each one and screenwriting <laughs> you know with, you know, real slouches like, uh, Peter Chirinelli, no, Alison no, 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 no. Thank you so, so much. And we hope you'll come back sometime soon. I would love to. God, she was so great. And I love that there are things that, you know, instincts like, well, I have to fire this person that seem crazy, but that you know you have to pursue in the moment. Or just like leaving the door open. What? Britney Spears wants to write a book together? Sure. I mean, I'll look into that. That doesn't work out. I'm going to work on another book. Oh, hi, Jennifer Garner. Oh, hi. Let me just write a screenplay. I'll just do it because I want to learn. You're so right. And she kept saying, I don't want to do the same thing over and over for my entire career, which I think is amazing and probably something that a lot of us would do better to embrace as a theory instead of being afraid of. Thank you so much to Alison Winscotch for joining us. Read her books. We'll be talking about her definitely in the future. And definitely let us know what you think uh, and about the books that you've read that are actually filling your rom-com holes, uh, who you're a fan of. Dirty. (laughs) You got to get it in there. Um, And what you would like to hear from us next in terms of guests and in terms of these mini-sodes about the work of writing. Until next time, check us out where you get your podcast. Please subscribe and leave comments. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. Bye. See ya.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.